Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of In the Pit with Lobo Tigre. Our victim of the day is Blake Steele. He's the CEO of Azarga Uranium. Now, uranium has been in the news a lot this year, both for good and bad reasons. Uh, and Azarga is developing ISR resources in the U.S. So it's something that's of interest to our audience. And clearly there's a story here. So, Blake, why don't you give us the overview of what you're doing? And then I've got a lot of questions for you. No, sounds good, Lobo. Thank you uh, for having me on the show today. I appreciate it. You know, Azarga Uranium is main board listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol AZZ. Uh, we're focused on the development of low-cost uranium assets in the United States. Ultimately, we want to be America's next uranium producer. Our flagship asset is the Advanced Stage Dewey Burdock Project located in South Dakota. Dewey, Dewey Burdock is one of the leading undeveloped in-situ recovery projects in the United States. And, and why I say in-situ recovery is because in-situ recovery accounts for 50% of uranium production in the world today and is the lowest cost of uranium, lowest cost form of uranium sure. mining. And, and, and really looking at Dewey Burdock relative to its peers, it possesses a sector leading combination of grade and scale. We've got 17 million pounds of measured and indicated resources, an additional 800,000 pounds of inferred resource, and, and a grade that is two to three times that of current producing projects, current producing ISR mines in the USA. You know, in, in terms of our current initiatives with respect to Dewey Burdock, we are preparing an updated preliminary economic assessment. In the fourth quarter of 2018, so going, on, going back a little bit here, we significantly increased our resource estimate at our flagship Dewey Burdock project. Our measured and indicated resources actually increased by 97% at the project. And, and what's important, and even more so important, is that all of those updated resource estimates fell within the, the, uh, the NRC license boundary, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission license boundary. So sort of the, the granddaddy of all permits at the federal level. Um, and, and, you know, we've said this publicly before, the larger and more contiguous resource is expected to achieve increased project economics. And it's not like our 2015 PEA was a slouch. Um, and our 2015 PEA was actually before the latest resource update we prepared last year. But, but that already demonstrated robust economics. Direct cash costs were $12.53, all in sustaining costs were in the low 30s. And, and our initial CapEx hurdle was actually you know, $27 million. So you, don't, you, you, know, you had first quartile cash costs and you had a sector leading uh, CapEx hurdle for a project of our size. You don't have that million dollar, or sorry, billion dollar <laughs> yeah. uh, CapEx hurdle that you do have for projects in the Athabasca well, Basin. Let me, so, let me jump in so there, really, Blake, let me jump so in there and I, ask, what price assumption do you use? I have other questions, but I, I gotta ask you, you're gonna throw out those numbers, you know, what price assumption uh, was that based on? Look, that, that was based on a $65 price assumption, which I think we can all say isn't realistic at today's point in time. But I, I do think it's going to be realistic in the future. And, and we'll, we'll get into, uh, you know, a little bit more of the, the global demand fundamentals, which, which I think are as strong, if not stronger than any other commodity uh, out there today. But, uh, you know, how we position Dewey Burdock, it's an internationally competitive project. So, you know, though we view what's going on in the U.S. with respect to the working group as added potential upside, and, and, and look, I'm really keen to see what the rec what recommendations come uh, out of the U.S. working group on October 10th here, and, and if there are direct purchases into the U.S. market, subsidies, you know, tax cuts, uh, in, you know, increased uh, 
access to capital, whatever it may be. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll gladly take all of those, but we really want to compare our project internationally and make sure we're competitive on that level. Sure. All right. Well, there's a whole bunch to tease apart there, but let's let's start with the big picture here. Uh, you mentioned, you know, low cost ISR and, and ISR is a big source of the uranium today. And, you know, the biggest are the Kazakis and they're cutting back production and chemical with their high grade mines. You know, they've shut down their richest mine in Canada. They're apparently thinking about shutting down the next one because the market has been so persistently bad for so long. Uh, you know, why on earth would you be developing resources in a sector where people are shutting down mines? Look, and I think I think at this point we, you know, we're lucky. We're fortunate. We're not in production at this point in time, so we don't have to make some of these difficult decisions that other producers in the space have to. Um, and, and you know, that said, we want to be ready to turn the switch um, when the market re-rates. And and you know, there's been a lot of numbers. The World Nuclear Association has put out. Uh, you know, their nuclear fuel cycle report here that comes out every two years. I think that came out about a week and a week and a half ago, something like that. And it was it was really interesting for the first time in eight years, nuclear power and uranium demand production were rising in all three scenarios. So the, the lower scenario, the reference scenario, uh, which is like the base case scenario and the upper scenario. And and, you know, the main reasons for those increases were, were really modification of energy policies from French governments, U.S. governments. For, you know, for example, looking at the French, they've delayed their reduction of nuclear as part of the overall energy mix, you know, decreasing from 75 percent to 50 percent from 2025 to 2035. Um, you know, they've allowed reactors to operate beyond 40 years. And, and you're starting to see similar things in the U.S., um, you're seeing state legislation supporting nuclear power generation through utilities receiving subsidies. Uh, you know, ultimately, the ultimately government and people are starting to recognize the critical role that nuclear plays in, in providing carbon-free emissions. So, you know, uh, I'm getting a little bit off topic to your question. Yeah, yeah. Going back to your no, question. No, but but there. it is it is interesting that that. It's striking, and you know, I'm going to help you out here a little bit, but it's striking yeah. to me how I think I see a story, if not every day, every week, there's some climate change warrior or another out there saying, you know what, you know, we're going to miss our deadlines. We need nuclear power. And I, that's just such a change from even just five years ago, let alone, you know, 10 or 15, yeah. when it was just Patrick Moore was the lone voice saying maybe we should reconsider nuclear. Uh, but, all right. So anyway, you were going to say... Uh, no, I, I, absolutely. And even in countries like Taiwan, where you've seen refer referendums overturn government decisions to restart nuclear reactors, etc. Um, you know, and, and what I was going to get to, I mean, 2018 was the first time in a number of years the uranium market actually moved into a deficit position. And, and that deficit position is forecast to persist for the, for, for, for the foreseeable future. And, and, you know, not only do these idle mines need to come back online, but additional new supply is required to fill right. the supply-demand gaps. And, 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 you know, there is a misconception about mining restarts. You know, a lot of people think that, you know, like a light switch, you can flip a mine right back on. Well, you know, realistically, there's staff that needs to be hired. There's training that needs to occur. Significant capital must be invested. So in some cases, it's easier and more efficient to bring on new mines, such as Dewey Burdock, that, that are more nimble, that are lower cost, that don't have those same significant capex hurdles. So, I mean, you know, to your, to your point, there has been a lot of mine supply come offline, you know, roughly in excess of 40 million pounds of production cuts. 
Um, but, you know, the WNA is also noticed in the report that secondary supply is expected to gradually decrease. You know, as you have that increased U308 demand, um, that's going to reduce underfeeding, yeah. that's going to reduce tail enrichments. Um, you know, there's ultimately less capacity for enrichers. So less capacity means less secondary supply. You know, and, and we've also seen tighter optimal tail requirements on, on contracts that have been recently signed. So, you know, coupled with the positive demand, the supply cuts, I mean, my view is that, it, you know, in, in short here, prices need to rise. It, it, to I, I, I agree. I, I was playing devil's advocate at the beginning. Exploration, et cetera. Sorry, I get, sorry, I get it. No, it's good. I, I was I was playing a bit of devil's advocate there, but it's good to hear you articulate the case. And it's interesting to talk to somebody who's in the industry in the specific commodity, you know, day in, day out, breeze it. I'm, I'm wondering, this. I wasn't planning on asking this, but since you bring up the, the WNA report, you know, I'm really interested in how well they can know what they say about secondary supply like those those japanese utilities that that whack the market they don't report you know publicly in a transparent way how does anybody really know whether that secondary supply is gonna you know come back and bite us on the posterior again or not until it happens right until the price shows us no look, look you're right it is it is a very opaque market and it's a very inefficient market and that can drive large price swings and and you know i think we can take some solace in the fact that you've seen conversion prices go from four and a half to five dollars up to twenty dollars and, and you know that's that's a function of in 2017 converdine was idle so you know supply has come offline with the enrichers um, you know, the same situation has really transpired here. You've had the, the, the cost of a separate work unit or a SWU right, right. that peaked at $200 back in the bull market in, uh, in, 2000, in the mid-2000s. That's come all the way down to $34 roughly 18 months ago. And now you've started to see that come back to $40. So when enrichers have this ex excess capacity, for example, post Fukushima, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they can extract more enriched uranium product than, than what contracts call for. Uh, and they can dump that into the, into the open market. Now, what we also saw in the WNA report is nuclear power uh, consumption has increased for the sixth straight year, almost to all time highs. So that, 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 that demand crunch is starting to be felt all the way along the cycle through enriching conversion as well as production. And, and, and on the uranium mining side, actually, I, I actually think the market is very vulnerable uh, to supply shocks at this time. I mean, to me, the perceived overhang of excess uranium is misleading. Uh, you know, you've got purchasing by Cameco and, and other utilities that are going to have to re-enter the market, and that's going to create upward pressure on your uranium prices before the market before the year is out. You know, not to mention the potential market <laughs> response from positive recommendations from the U.S. Working well, Fuel oh, yeah. Group. Let's talk about that. So, I, I remember when July uh, four, or actually July twelve was when the leak happened, and July fourteen, you know, the White House put yep. out the press release. Uh, uranium pops 5% the next day, even though the stocks don't move, because there's a perception of, oh, this question about 232, it's done. So now the, the uncertainty will clear from the market. But no, it turns yeah. out, you know, not so fast. We still have uncertainty. We have this working group. Um, can you say from your uh, conversations with the people in the industry, do you know, is it is it a fact that U.S. buyers are still off the market and waiting to see what the working group does or doesn't? Or is that just a supposition? 
Look, it's, I mean, reading between the lines a little bit here, you can see that Cameco's increased their contract book. Um, you, you've seen additional pounds come into that. You, you, we have no idea uh, of the price. And, and at the end of the day, that's simply because the counterparty to that contract likely doesn't want that price being disclosed. And, and to me, that's because that $32 price point isn't a real number. There, there's no meaningful contracts being signed at a $32 long-term price. So I, you know, I, I don't think there's many contracts being signed at this point. I think they are waiting for that clarity uh, in terms of those uh, working group recommendations. I mean, earlier this year, I want to say sometime in the summer, Cameco tried to you know, place orders for a million pounds in the spot yeah, market. Yeah, I, I remember that. That was in their MDNA. Exactly. And, and they couldn't fill that order at the market price. They were only able to fill one third of that order. So to me, you've got a lot of bears out there that are saying, oh, there's excess inventory in the market and they'll throw around these 1.4, 1.8 billion pound in above ground inventory figures. But, but what they fail to mention is not much of this inventory is mobile. I mean, once you back out depleted tails, holdings from financial entities, government stockpiles being held by held for strategic purposes, and and you back out China, who's aggressively ramping up nuclear power generation, U.S. utilities right now only hold two and a bit years worth of inventory, and that's actually at the low end of historical norms. So when you when you look at the nuclear fuel cycle from uranium mining all the way through to fabrication. It's 18 to 24 months. It, it's a very long cycle, so markets tend to react early. Um, and, and utilities need to start contracting, and we can see they're having those discussions, um, you know, off the back of Cameco's supply book increasing, uh, and talking to others in the industry that have current production available. I mean, we've seen a few RFPs come across our desk, um, but at the end of the day, security of the supply is the most important consideration for a utility. Uh, and the input cost is negligible relative to the overall operating cost. So, so you know, I, I mean, from my perspective, when I look at the continued supply curtailments from Cameco and Kazataprom, and Kazataprom, you know, as you mentioned, or as you talked about earlier, I think, May, they've extended their supply yes. cuts through 2021. There's, there's a decline in inventories. You know, there's significant purchaser uh, commitments that need to be made. Cameco needs to pick up or I should, shouldn't say needs, is expected to purchase 10 to 12 million pounds before the end of the year just to fill their commitment obligations. So, you know, in my view, like I said, the, the, the market is quite vulnerable to supply shocks. Um, and, and look, I wouldn't be surprised to see the uranium price significantly increase before year end. I, I think there's a misconception between <laughs> available supply and actual available supply. Understood. And, yeah, uh, yeah, that's great. It's a great pitch. Uh, I, for you know, for what it's worth, I do agree with you, but I have to ask these questions. It's good to hear you, an industry insider, articulate it. All right, but let's go ahead and talk about your company's projects. You have a flagship there, Dewey Burdock, um, and you described it a little bit already. So, if if the idea is we're going to try to advance this to be ready to go when the uranium prices justify it. You know, what are the milestones? Where are you at? And what's the upside in that project? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, right now, uh, in terms of a permitting perspective, there's two key federal permits that need to be obtained in South Dakota. And that's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission license and, and EPA permits for the wells. 
deep disposal wells, injection wells, etc. Now, we've received our final Nuclear Regulatory Commission permit and our draft EPA permits. So the Nuclear Regulatory Commission license, there's one remaining contention on that license that we're working through. And, and a hearing for that was recently held in South Dakota, and it sets the timeline for a decision as December 6th. So from our perspective, the, we feel that the hearing went well. We look forward to resolving this contention and further advancing the project. But we need to get through this final contention on our NRC license. The draft EPA permits, we just received revised draft permits a couple of weeks ago. And that was a really important step for us because those revised draft permits actually address the majority of the comments that we had on our initial permits. Um, so now we're working through the finalization of those permits in the near term. And, and look, we expect that to follow, you know, if not late this year, early next year. The state permits have actually already been recommended for approval. Um, the, the state is ultimately waiting for the feds to issue their final approvals before they issue their final approvals. So, uh, you know, from a permitting perspective, we're well and truly advanced. We're in the final stages. The big, the big catalyst on the project, you know, is going to be uh, is going to be the updated PEA. And and you know, to your point earlier, I mean, we didn't want to spend a ton of money advancing projects in, in a depressed uranium market over the last few years. So what we did is we acquired historical data. And we acquired that historical data at a relatively low cost and had our own internal geologist spend 18 months of his life going through that data, aggregating it. It effectively doubled the number of mineralized intercepts that we had at Dewey Burdock. So, you know, of, of that, you know, 16.9 million pound measured and indicated resource I'm talking about, 13 plus million is in the measured category. So, you know, we're, we've got very high confidence on our resource. Um, and look, we're, we're expecting the economics on this update to come out ahead of where they were in the last 2015 PEA. So on our end, we've been doing everything we can to advance the project as cost effectively as we can over the last few years, because ultimately, you know, we want to avoid dilution. I mean, we, the management team, directors, insiders, we have a lot of skin in the game here. Um, so our interests are very aligned with shareholders. All right. So what happens after you uh, publish the PEA? I mean, it's just a, a PEA. Conceptual, yeah. do you then go straight on to pre-fees or full fees? Or do you then look, try look, to drill off more, make it bigger? Or what, what's the game plan? I look, at that point, I think, I think the game plan for us is still to focus on finalization of the permitting. I mean, the, the asset is well-defined. I mean, spacing on measured resources is less than 100 feet. Um, so we're talking a very well-defined resource already. It's got thousands and thousands of drill holes sunk into it. Um, so, so like I say, focus on the finalization of permitting. Um, and really at that point, I mean, you know, we're, we're going to be into a market, in our view, that started to turn the corner. So at that point, we can start having conversations about project financing, you know, looking at future offtake agreements, you know, and going down that path because for us, a $27 million CapEx hurdle isn't insurmountable, um, even in a slightly improved market. We don't need $65 uranium or even $55 uranium to get this up. Right, but I mean, you wouldn't move towards project finance on a PEA, would you? You'd have to do more definitive feasibility work. 
Uh, look, look, in the U.S., actually, for in-situ recovery projects in the U.S., so if you look at Lost Creek, if you look at Nichols Ranch, which is, sorry, Lost Creek is your energy's project, Nichols Ranch is energy fuels, they, they actually only have PEAs. And, and I don't, I, I'm not going to be able to fully articulate this well because I'm not a geologist, but under 43101, defining a resource for an in-situ recovery model uh, or a project, it cannot be done. And, and that's why you don't see it on these projects um, at, at Lost Creek or, or Nichols Ranch. I mean, we've sunk, I want to say, 7,000 drill holes into this already. Wow. Well, hmm. okay. <laughs> I'll have to go and verify that. That's interesting. Yeah, no, and look, and, and, and I mean, look, to, to, be, to be frank, we have Trek that built our last PEA and put it together for us. And Trek is also, well, now Woodward Kern. Trek has been acquired by Woodward Kern. Um, and, and Woodward Kern, Trek, they, they built, you know, the last couple of uh, processing plants and, and projects in the U.S. So they, they have firsthand knowledge of actual costs to build these assets out. And, and, and we think from our perspective, it's important to be working with people that, that know the industry inside and out. And, and these projects are within a couple hundred miles of ours. So, you know, similar geological formations. Uh, and so, so they ultimately know what they're doing here. All right. Okay. So let's, let's be kind of specific here. Yeah. Let's say uranium cooperates, does what you and I both hope it will do over the next year. And, you know, everybody's back in business. Uh, you had 1.2 million in the bank as of your last financial statements. Uh -huh. You know how far does that get you? Where, you know what are the deliverables? Does that 1.2 million cover it, or would you have to go back to the market? No, look, we'll, we'll have to go back to the market and, and likely raise additional capital. I mean, the, the key for our last capital raise was to get us through the revised draft permits on the EPA front, which we've achieved. Um, you know, obviously we were hoping for a slightly more positive and definitive 232 outcome, but we've gotten through that. You know, now, now we want to get through the PEA update, um, you know, the working group recommendations and through the year end here. So, um, you know, look, we're, we, are, we are in a position where, you know, next year we're going to have to look at raising capital, um, but we should be substantially more advanced from where we are today. And, and importantly, in the uranium market, we're going to see what really comes to fruition here in October and November. Um, and, you know, when you have Cameco coming back to the market, filling that, you know, the 10 to 12 million pound demand uh, and, and seeing what other utilities are doing. Even, even past WNA, there's been a lot more chatter in the industry and, and utilities and talking long-term contracts, that sort of thing, which is typical this time of year. It's an interesting point about Cameco. Everybody's so focused on what may or may not happen with the 232 follow-on working group. But, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if Cameco, at the end of the day, couldn't buy the uranium it wants to sell into higher price contracts and actually had to go back and produce it itself? That would be very telling about the, the state of the market if, if that were to come out in their uh, next uh, quarters. No, that look that that would be that would be really interesting to see how they go and, and you know really see what happens to the price. Um, and, and look, I, I think they'll be able to fill that order. It's just a question of where the price is going to go. I, I don't think you're going to get the price going back to forty-five dollars on the back of them buying ten to twelve million pounds. And, and I think you need sort of forty-five, fifty dollars for them to restart uh, MacArthur. So. Um, but but I, but I do think it is going to be a, it's, it's going to be a key test point for the market. All right. So basically, we're looking to update the PEA, 
hopefully get much more robust numbers and a revaluation based on that, and then potentially raise money later, you know, at a higher price next year with higher uranium and, and higher valuation. Uh, all good. The, the question I always have to ask everybody, though, is uh, the skin of the game question. Honestly, you look pretty, pretty young for a CEO. Uh, so that's a that's a separate question. But I'm wondering, you know, did you just get uh, the job and some options or did you put any of your own money into this deal? No, look, I, I, I've been involved in the resource space oh, almost almost actually probably more than 15 years or so at this point. I mean, I, I started my career actually as a bean counter at Deloitte in, in Vancouver. And uh, when you're a bean counter at Deloitte in Vancouver, you're basically focused on mining companies. Uh, and from there, I moved into the financial advisory group and, and joined Ivanhoe Mines Group after that and, and South Gobi Resources. And, and while at South Gobi Resources, we raised over a billion dollars U.S. and ramped the project up to, you know, 1,500 employees in Mongolia, and it was a significant coal producer. So I, um, I've got significant skin in the game. I, I own about 3% of the company. I've put a lot of my own capital uh, into this business. And, and look, I look at it, you want to bet on yourself um, as opposed to others in this world. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a highly motivated guy. I've, uh, I've, I've pretty much invested a significant chunk of my wealth into this business because I believe in it. I believe in our team. And, and you know, that's another thing. I think, I think we've got a phenomenal team um, here at, uh, at Azarga as well. I mean, our, our team has in excess of 100 years experience, uh, combined experience in the ISR space, including permitting, development, and construction. And I think, I think that's quite unique uh, for a development stage company such as ourselves. Our chairman, Glenn Cashpool, he's the former CEO of Uranus, which is a company that was bought out by Energy Fuels. He's got 40 plus years in the business. And our COO, um, John Mays, he's worked for producing businesses in both Kazakhstan and the US. So, you know, I, I think we've got a great team. I believe in our assets. Um, and, you know, I didn't really touch on our other assets outside of uh, Dewey Burdock, but. Uh, Happy to do so if we have any time left. Well, why don't we give it another minute then? You know, what have you got in the pipeline? What comes next? Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it quickly for you. So, I mean, our, our secondary, our second development project would be Gas Hills, and, and Gas Hills is a prolific uranium region in Wyoming. There's been over 100 million pounds of conventional uranium produced there historically. Previously, Gas Hills was only looked at from a conventional perspective. So we're looking at it more from an ISR perspective, and, and we've completed hydrological studies, uh, which indicate hydraulic heads, so water above the ore body, uh, and permeability are suitable for in-situ recovery mining. So at this project, we're going to continue to evaluate these results and evaluate future in-situ recovery development options. And then, and then our other key focus is Dewey Terrace. And Dewey Terrace is directly adjacent to Dewey Burdock uh, on the Wyoming side of the border. At Dewey Terrace, we've actually identified significant mineralization, uranium mineralization. Um, and, and we look at that as a potential to become a satellite project to Dewey Burdock and supplement its existing resources. So, so again, there we're evaluating historical data with the goal of identifying further mineralization and quantifying that resource. Okay, very good. So you're not just a one-trick pony. We're and not just a one-trick pony. And you've got your own skin in the game. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. Appreciate the time. Thank you.